0: Looking for adventure in 2023? How does island hopping in Thailand sound? What about marveling at waterfalls in Iceland? Or tapas with your new BFFs in Seville? What about discovering the world with an awesome group of 18 to 35? Explore all of this and more with Kintiki You'll sleep in the coolest accommodation and learn from local guides and experts. Visit Kintiki.com. That's C-O-N-T-I-K-I.com to book your next adventure. Kintiki, Travel together. A doctor, a teacher, a clergyman. You sent pornographic pictures through the mail. Okay, that's a federal offense right there. You know I'm in trouble, and I know I'm in trouble. I tried to get into their heads and understand why. We pizza we have tonight. I, I, I want to know who you are. I want to know a little bit more about you first. Can I eat first? Sure, go ahead. Let's see if any of this sounds familiar while you enjoy your pizza. are the predators I've caught. I'm Chris Hansen. In March 2007, we got ready to do another to catch a predator investigation in Manilocan, New Jersey, along the Jersey Shore. As my producer was arranging the lease for the house, she brought up with the owner, one of the owners, if he knew anyone who was, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old, who... Looked younger, who might be a theater student or somebody who would be interested in being the on site decoy for that particular investigation. And he looked at my producer and said, Yeah, my daughter. And that's when we met 18 year old Casey Morrow, who became the on site decoy in New Jersey for an investigation and an investigation after that. There has been a fascination with not just the predators I've caught but also the people who have helped me catch them. And Casey Morrow is one of them. And so it is, we're going to talk to Casey on this episode of Predators I've Caught. I'm Chris Hansen. Casey Morrow, how are you?
1: I'm great, Chris. It's a lovely morning here in Bali. How are you?
0: I'm great. I'm in New York City, which is a far cry from Bali and we'll get to why you're in Bali a little later in this interview, but first let's start at the very beginning. How did your father first broach the topic of you being a decoy for us in the To Catch a Predator investigation at your family home in New Jersey?
1: He did that to himself. He brought that upon all of us. And I don't think he realized what he was uh, getting us all into either. It sounded fun and he loves reading the Enquirer. So this just sounded dramatic like his Enquirer magazine there. (laughs) I was a freshman in college and it was spring break. So most people go to Cancun or Miami. I was home in my sweatpants playing with the dogs in New Jersey. And I got a phone call from my dad and he said, Hey, come down to Nana's house. I have some uh, people who want to meet you. And like, who the heck is around in, you know, March this time of year down here at the Jersey Shore? And I said, okay. So, you know, I went on down, headed to Nana's. And I'm thinking, maybe it's old friends of his. You know how parents are like, oh, come see so and so. They haven't seen you in 20 years. So I was like waiting for that game. And I show up at my Nana's house and he's standing there. And there's three people with long trench coats on and dressed <laughs> quite formally. And I'm like, these are not my dad's friends, right? And so I'm like, all right, who are you people? And the producer Lynn was like, hi, I'm Lynn Keller from NBC. And I was like, oh, sorry. I felt very rude and inappropriate because I was in my sweatpants thinking this is going to be a casual introduction. And no, they were very formal. And Ron was there as well.
0: Ron Knight, who did yes. security for us during the investigations.
1: And he said, you're hired. And I'm like, what the (laughs) flip is going on here? Is my dad playing a joke on me? And he's just standing there grinning. I have no idea. And he pulls some tricks pretty often. So I'm like, this is a joke. And then Lynn started explaining the show to me. They hire an actress. And then as a performer, I understand how that process works of auditioning and having a proper headshot and resume, right? So now like I put my professional pants on as I stand there in my sweatpants. And like, oh, do you need a resume? Do you need a headshot? Oh, thank you so much. You know, I turned from this like, who the flip are you guys? To like, oh, nice to meet you. Thank you. (laughs) Have you seen
0: a show before, Casey?
1: No, I hadn't. I rarely watch TV, so I had no idea what was going on.
0: So at this point, it was 2007. The show first came on in 2004. And this would be our 11th investigation. And we had used other on-site decoys in the past with a great deal of success. But you were the first one who really... Seemed to be vested in the role, who became a member of the crew, as it were. Give me a sense for what you expected going into that investigation.
1: I didn't know what to expect. And to be completely honest, I didn't even watch any episodes prior to shooting. So we had two weeks once I was informed of the situation. And the only explanation I had was from what you guys had told me. And so I just kind of created my own reality with that scenario, because if I watch something, so again, as an actress and things, you know, they oh study roles and blah, blah, blah. But then I kind of take on the role of how it was done already. And I like to create my own. And especially with this situation, I didn't want to dig too much because I would have probably been so much more afraid. If I knew what I was getting myself into, you know, sometimes you're better off not knowing <laughs> you just do it.
0: Right. Exactly. This is sort of like when I first did the, the confrontation in the very first investigation several yeah. years ago. This was, yeah. as you said, your Nana's house, your beachfront home that had been in the family for generations. Correct. And as I recall, you were somewhat comfortable in that environment because you had grown up with that house and the family. But still, here it is. Day one of the investigation. And a guy is coming, one of the predators, and you have to meet him face to face. Take me into that moment. What was that like for you?
1: My heart was racing the entire time. I could like play it cool because I've got a really good poker face from being a performer. And if something hurts or you're scared, you just smile bigger. But man, if like the wind blew the wrong way, I was probably going to jump and hide somewhere. And yes, it was my Nana's house. But what you don't know is growing up, there were ghosts and goblins in that house and our uncles would grab our ankles if we went down the basement in the dark and we would run from the first floor to the third floor because of the eh and the monsters that lived on the second floor. So I guess that was just conditioning me to have actual predators come into the house. <laughs> so there was, I guess, a level of comfort of familiarity, but you never know who's gonna walk through that door as a predator. And again, I didn't know what to expect because we were supposed to do a dress rehearsal as a seasoned performer. I was like, great, I'll know what to do. And then the guy showed up early, remember? Because he wasn't supposed to come until later. Yes, exactly.
0: Do you remember that very first predator who showed up?
1: Visually, I do. But as far as his name, I don't. I think I temporarily blacked out. (laughs) (laughs) And he just, you know, I had frag in my ear and he's like, okay, he's at the door and I hear knock, knock, knock. And I'm surprised you couldn't hear my heart thumping through the microphone on my shirt there. And I just jumped in completely as far as, okay, they said I need to talk to him. So I'm just going to talk to him like, another person who's walking through the house. And so that's exactly what I did. And when I get nervous, I talk a lot. And so I think that's why I just kept talking and talking to him. But at the same time, that's what I thought I was supposed to do. I didn't know I was supposed to leave after like 30 seconds because no one told me that.
0: Well, you mentioned Frag. Frag is uh, a member of Perverted Justice, the online watchdog group who performed the role of online predator during our investigations. And he was in your ear directing, kind of coordinating the chat with the predator online, the communication via cell phone, and then his arrival. It is a lot going on. I mean, it's a lot for me, and that was the 11th investigation. It's a lot to ask of an 18-year-old woman. But you did it, and you did it extremely well.
1: Well, thank you. I felt very comfortable as far as I knew you were right around the corner. I knew that there was security everywhere. And there was even like, you know, my personal bodyguard right behind the tall hutch there as well. So if anything were to go down, I felt like I was supported and safe for the most part. And I kept a really safe distance from the people coming into the house. So I knew I could run away a lot faster if need be as well. So there wasn't really that Extreme fear of I felt all alone. As much as the room was quiet, you know, everyone was in the room and then they're like, okay, he's here. And I turned around and everybody was gone. And it was kind of that instance where you're like, all right, everybody, let's go jump off a bridge. And you turn around and everyone's gone and you're the only one standing there to jump. I was like, wait a
0: minute. (laughs) Let me take you through some of the specifics of that investigation. One of the fellows who showed up, Eugene Daly. He said he was in his 40s, but he was actually in his 50s. He was a postal worker. He sat across from you at the beach. We set up outside the house on the beach for the first time, which gave us a different sort of background. We had microphones hidden in seashells. And you asked him what he wanted to do, and he went through this whole creepy thing about hold you, touch you, kiss you, baby steps. Do you remember that?
1: Oh, yeah, I do, unfortunately.
0: And you sat there, really cool, composed, and had a conversation with him. And those conversations were important, I think, for the show because it showed these guys actually saying what they wanted to do to somebody who they thought was a 13, 14 year old girl. But it had to be creepy for you, Casey.
1: It is. It's incredibly creepy to have someone tell you what they want to do to you when you're not even close to being interested. Nonetheless, him being in his 50s and I was 13 years old, even at 18 years old, if that man approached me and said those things to me, I would be creeped out and disgusted. And it does. It makes me sick to my stomach to this very day. I don't think those scenarios will be able to be separated out from, oh, this is an acting job. No, this is real life. These are two people sitting in front of each other. Yes, I'm supposed to be portraying a 13, 14-year-old girl, but there was very little acting happening in this whole thing. People see me as an actress in this. There was no script. You know that. It is completely off the cuff. And to not take it on a personal level is very difficult. Like this stuff sits with you for years even. And the thought that he wanted to do this to a 13 and 14 year old girl runs through my head as well. Like, thank goodness I'm not 13 or 14, because that might, for some reason, sound appealing to a 13 or 14 year old girl, for whatever reason.
0: Was there ever anything you wanted to ask any of the predators when you were face to face that you didn't get a chance to because I walked out to do the confrontation or it just seemed like there wasn't enough time to do it?
1: While we were shooting, I didn't want to ask too many questions because I didn't want to instigate anything or pry on something that could have led down a path of legal issues. But if you ask me like on a personal level, like right now, I want to know why are you here? What could be helpful for these people to not be in this situation anymore? A lot of them would divulge to me of like, they're alone. They can't find a girl that will actually like them and all these things. And so they end up down this path for some reason or another. And it seems so illogical to me. And I want to know why or what could be done to not have this
0: happen. 28 men surfaced in that investigation. Some of them were there to meet a young teen boy, but the vast majority were there and had a confrontation or at least a conversation with you. How did you feel when that first investigation was over? It was a lot to process, I imagine.
1: Yeah, my whole body was tingling and kind of shaking. And I remember Lynn came out and gave me a hug. (laughs) So that was nice. (laughs) And it was kind of like, wait, what just happened did that really just happen? Is this real? Is this fake? Can someone call cut, please? So I feel like this is really fake and we're on set. But it wasn't. It was real. As much as there was cameras everywhere and we were shooting a TV show, it felt more real than anything I've ever shot before.
0: All of those men in the first investigation were prosecuted. They faced punishment ranging from probation, registration as a sex offender to prison time. What did you think personally you accomplished in your role in the New Jersey investigation?
1: I think I brought to light that this can happen anywhere. Where we live in New Jersey, it's a little bubble. It seems like this perfect utopian town where everything's happy-go-lucky and you let your guard down. But the fact that these men were coming from not necessarily too far away, that we are not in a bubble, we're not protected, we're not invincible, even in this seemingly little perfect town. And we need to keep our eyes open and aware of these situations just because it hasn't affected us personally at one point doesn't mean it can't, doesn't mean we're immune to it. And so it really showed, I think, especially for the locals who didn't even know this stuff existed. Because again, we lived in this bubble.
0: This was a vacation community, essentially.
1: For the most part, yes. In the winter, it's quite dead. And in the summer, it you know triples probably even more at this point with tourists and things that come down. So that point, it was March. So it was still relatively quiet and there was nobody around. And if people came up to the beach or something, I knew a couple of the people that were coming up to check the waves and they wanted to say hi to me. And I couldn't say hi back because we were in the middle of a sting operation. But like, that's how small the town is and how quiet it is.
0: Was there a time during that New Jersey investigation that you were fearful that you thought you might be in danger?
1: Yes. The scariest for me was the man who drove six hours on his motorcycle from Pennsylvania. Do you remember him?
0: Sure. How could I forget?
1: (laughs) There was just something very eerie about him. And I'm quite good at getting a sense of people, especially when I can look them straight in the eyes. And depending on how big or small their pupils are, where they're looking, that type of thing. And I do, I just get a sense. And before I even got to be in person with him. I said, this guy is trouble. There's something off.
0: This guy's name was Todd Lewis, and he was a repeat offender. He'd been arrested for this sort of activity before. Six hours on a motorcycle to have a central liaison with a young teen girl.
1: Yes, because if he crossed state borders, I believe the rules are different. So maybe if he thought he was in a different state, it wouldn't be caught or it wouldn't... uh, affect his current situation. He
0: was an edgy guy, I recall.
1: Yeah, he was like someone that at any moment, I feel like could dart in one direction. And I kept getting this feeling that he was going to have a gun on him. And so once I planted that thought in my head, all bets were off. And I was like, oh boy, here we go. And he took forever to show up because he was driving for a long time. So I was tired at that point. It was like 1.30 in the morning. I think we're even going to call it for the night. And I remember like, nope, he's on his way. And I was like, oh jeez, here we go. And when he walked in that house, I almost bailed. Like I wanted to bail so hard and I didn't. But when he came in, I felt like he was going to run and grab me. That's what it felt like. He was very light on his feet. And so I remember trying to get behind the bar as fast as possible.
0: And then at the same time, I'm in the next room and I'm trying to make my move at the appropriate time without jumping the gun. Obviously, we want to see the interaction between you and the predator. But at the same time, we don't want it to go on so long to give the predator an opportunity to get too close to you. Mm -hmm. You know, Ron Knight, the rest of the security team is there. We've got the police right outside. But there are no hard and set rules for this sort of thing. You kind of have to feel your way through it. And it's tense for me, so I can only imagine what it was like for you.
1: And that's just it. It's not set. And we have no control over what these guys are going to do. And they are completely unpredictable. They have very little frontal lobe inhibition, hence the reason they're at the house, thinking that they can sleep with a 13 year old girl. And the scariest thought for me was getting grabbed or getting shot. (laughs) Those were like my top two. If I thought they were going to grab me or shoot me, I was shaking in my bones. And this guy, looking into his eyes, it was like glass. He was not processing what was happening in the room. He had another agenda, and I couldn't figure out what it was. So that was scary.
0: We even had a guy who recognized me before I could say who I was. Yeah, <laughs> which to me was was shocking. This guy worked; he was twenty five. He worked at an auto dealership, and before I could say I'm Chris Hansen, he said, "Oh yeah, I watch your shows all the time." <laughs> no. I mean, this is how far into it that we had gotten at this point in that first series of investigations. This went so well with you that we asked you to come with us on the next investigation, the 12th investigation in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Did you have any reservations about doing it again?
1: No, I didn't. I remember getting the phone call and I moved to New York City after the investigation in New Jersey because I was like, if I can talk to predators and survive, I could totally survive New York City. So thank you for that push. <laughs> and I was in... A organic, we do. <laughs> I was in a, my organic chemistry lab and those things last for hours. So I like went out to check my phone and I had a missed call from NBC and I got the message and I was like, oh, yes, but I have so many questions. And then... I called back and my biggest reservation was, but aren't they going to know who I am? Because the episode from New Jersey aired in July and it did quite well. And a lot of people watched it. And so I'm thinking, how can I do it again? They're going to know it's me. So I'm like, oh, I'll straighten my hair. I'll wear a different hat. And you guys were like, no, no, it's fine. They won't notice. But I'm like, how can you not recognize me? You know, I've got curly hair. And that was my only reservation of they're going to know as soon as I open the door that it's a sting operation. But boy, was I wrong. That's for sure.
0: And again, we had men show up, this time in Bowling Green, Kentucky, another beautiful big house in the suburbs, including a fellow named Dustin McFetridge, Mm. who had cerebral palsy. Did you ever feel sorry for any of these guys, specifically Dustin?
1: For a brief moment, I did. I can't imagine how challenging it is to have cerebral palsy and have to move around and try and get upstairs and things like that. So on a human level, it's unfortunate that people have to live with this. And he pulled up really close to the house and he got out and had his cane and he even kind of tripped for a moment and I wanted to like help him. But at the same time, I remember the conversations that he was having with this 13 year old girl. And this was not his first time around. And I I don't want to touch him. I don't want to go near him. And he's obviously he's capable of getting himself into the house and all of that. So that was a very quick, fleeting thought of, I feel sorry for him, but he knows exactly what he is doing.
0: I was wincing watching him walk from his car to the house. I'm sure you were too. Everybody was. It was painful to watch. But when you read the transcripts and just in the last episode, we talk about Dustin McFetridge here on this podcast. When you read the transcripts, you see what he was capable of doing to a 13-year-old girl. And in fact, we found out that he had tried this with another young teen whose mother was dating a police officer and he got, you know, into trouble, but they let him slide because he apologized. And here he is again, not having learned his lesson, back at it, and he gets caught in our investigation. Since then... He has violated parole, he has flunked out of his therapy session, and he is awaiting a hearing for violating his probation again, Mm -hmm. all these years later. What does that say about these guys? And The empathy doesn't last very long, does it?
1: No, especially when someone's sitting there telling you they want to like shave you with the electric razor that they brought for you.
0: And he brought a razor, by the way. He did. Yeah.
1: It just goes right out the window. I have no empathy for that.
0: More of our story in a moment. There was one incident in, well, there were a few in Bowling Green. A fellow who was six foot six inches, James Travis Fowler, he got out of the lazy boy chair that we had set up in the living room and came towards you (gasps) for a hug. What was going through your mind when that happened?
1: Pretty much that. (laughs) To have a human being that tall and large coming at you, knowing that they could squish you in an instant, is absolutely terrifying that there's no way around it.
0: Well, we scrambled on that one and, you know, obviously interceded, but that was a big guy. You know, it was interesting because in Kentucky, there were fewer fellows who showed up, fewer predators who showed up, but each one of them, it seems, has this iconic status in terms of, you know, predators I've caught, including Lorne Armstrong. Do you remember him? His chat was about as long as a phone book.
1: Yes, he was a chatty one.
0: Do you ever follow any of the news on these guys over the years?
1: I haven't, just for my own mental capabilities, and I really have no reason to at this point. And again, I guess out of curiosity, I could a little bit, but I feel like I've had such an interaction with all these men that I've gotten my fill of who they are as people and whatever they do in their future or what they've done in their past is what they've done to take my energy and focus it on them when I've been affected by them so strongly, even just within a five-minute interaction. I, um, yeah, I haven't sought out Keep tabs on them, but I do know Lauren Armstrong has quite a presence because of social media and the internet. I do not live under a rock. I may live in Bali right now, but not under a rock. <laughs> there is a a large following of Lauren and some things that he said that have become quite repeatable.
0: Well, yeah, he was the one who said, "Oh my cod," and, and you know, instead of God, he pronounced it cod, and now there's the Church of Cod and people. I mean, there are entire groups online who follow the activities of Lauren Armstrong, all these years later.
1: He's definitely an iconic person.
0: There was another fellow who came in Kentucky, into the Kentucky investigation. And you may remember because he was pretty mild-mannered, Michael Patterson, he came in, he had his discussion, I confronted him, he left. Now, this is the fellow who took his shoes off because he didn't want to drag dirt into the house, but he was fine- you know, violating a, a young teen girl. As he was leaving, he didn't follow the law enforcement officer's instructions. They tried to taser him. One of the connectors didn't hit him properly and he backed into the house and he ran <laughs> towards us. Do you remember this? Yes. And, and I mean, it's it's kind of humorous now. At the time, I remember seeing the video in the editing room. And there was a single shot of my face and it just, you know, I'm looking, here he goes. Okay. It's time for the police to get him. And all of a sudden he turns, he starts running and you see my face and I'm trying to, okay, is Casey okay? You know, where's Ronnie Knight? Okay. He's got this under control. And I just remember that staircase was there and I backed up the staircase and they weren't playing at this point. They took the teaser out and they had it right in his neck and they gave him, you know, a full dose of, of electricity. And he uh, finally calmed down, but that was, and they got him out of there. They cuffed him and got him out of there. That was crazy. I remember.
1: I'm sorry, but your face when you ran up the stairs.
0: Yeah. It's like, all right, is everybody safe? Everybody's out of the way? Okay, well, now I'm going to get out of the way and let the police oh, yeah. get the job. That was the only time out of all the investigations and even the more recent ones, we did some in uh, Michigan a couple months ago. And, and obviously we did one in, a few years ago in um, Fairfield, Connecticut. But that was the only time that somebody, you know, retreated that far into the house where the police had to come in and get up Mm. and it was literally shocking. What do you think for you, Casey, the takeaway has been in terms of your experience being a decoy in these two investigations?
1: It made me grow up very quickly. I had lived a pretty sheltered life in little old New Jersey and... I too was unaware of the capabilities of people, or that that actually happens. But sitting face to face with all these different men made me realize everyone has their agenda, whether it's morally correct or not. And all of these situations with these men and interactions has definitely stayed with me all these years. And I definitely lost trust for a long time. I did not trust anybody. I wasn't keen on trusting people in general, but after this, forget that, especially in New York City, I trusted nobody. Like You couldn't tell me one thing, even if you were trying to just be nice and you weren't a predator or a pedophile, I'd be like, get out of my face.
0: You were 18 at the time when we did Hmm. the first investigation. You are 32 years old today. People know who you are based upon your appearance in those two investigations, in those two shows. Mm -hmm. Do you have an online following? Is it a fandom or are there creepy guys who seek you out because you posed as a young teen girl? Explain that.
1: Yeah, I definitely have a a group of people that follow me on the internet for sure. And You know, right after the show aired, it was more in-person. People would recognize me. They'd recognize my voice. Or in New York City, someone recognized my hat that I was wearing. And now with the internet, and I guess everything is on YouTube that you can watch all the time and people just repost clips. And there's thousands of people that will find me on my social media for the good and the bad, right? I get people who say, thank you so much. You did a great job. I appreciate that you... We're able to be a part of this. You know, I have a daughter who's X years old and I want to teach her about online safety, and that's great. And then there's the people who are like, I want to F you in your dad's bed, you're a MILF, or what happened to you? You look like a troll face. So I get it all. And I can't stop what people are gonna say. But if I do get those kinds of messages, either like directly through email or social media, I just block if it's going to be super negative like that. And if someone genuinely has something nice to say or like, I appreciate it, thank you. Cool, that's fine, you know? So funny you should ask that because, so I'm in Bali right now. And last Friday, I went to Ahmed on the other side of the island to do some snorkeling. And I was with a couple of friends and we were getting dinner that night. And it's a small community in Ahmed. There's barely anybody there. So everybody knows everybody. And my friend knows that sector of the island quite well. And he was talking to somebody. He said, oh, you know, nice to see you, blah, blah, blah. And his friend looked at me and he said, you look really familiar. <laughs> I said, oh, maybe from around the island, you know, maybe in Uluwatu or a boot or Chenggu something. He's like, no, I think I know you from like a movie. And I said, well, maybe I've been in a couple of movies. And he goes, oh, you're yeah. the girl from To Catch a Predator.
0: And this is just a week ago.
1: This was on Friday. Yeah. And my two friends who I've Bali here in Bali were on in, the other of the world. Yeah, in Ahmed. Let me tell you, there's probably like 20 people that live in Ahmed right now. And it was, a, well, it was a Friday night. So, ooh, there was 10 people out. And the two friends I was with, they had no idea that I was on the show, right? That's the cool thing about being in Bali. Like nobody knows who you are. Everyone's just in bathing suits and we're all human. And so they were looking at this interaction like what is going on? Because this guy, Greg, is like, oh my God. And he's trying to tell his other friend. He's like, I used to watch her when I was in college with my friends and blah, blah, blah. But nobody else had any idea what was going on. And he's from London. What are the odds? You know, and then we were connecting last week and talking. So just that the universe pulls things back around. And that was in 2007. It's been 13 years. Granted, I was in my bathing suit. I think I had like a, a tank top over my bathing suit. My hair was up in a wet bun. I was in the water all day. Like completely unrecognizable for the most part. And it's been 13 years.
0: That's astounding. So let's talk about what Casey has been up to since you first worked with us on the catcher You finished college. How does a New Jersey, New York girl end up in Bali halfway across the world?
1: Uh three plane rides,
0: actually.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When we started that sting operation, I was a freshman in college and I was a biology and forensic science major. But it was the first year I hadn't taken any friends at classes, nothing. It always fascinated me. And during the stings, I felt like I was kind of psychoanalyzing these guys for my safety and curiosity. And so again, I would watch their pupils and where they were shooting or directing their eyes so I could kind of tell if they were more afraid than me or if they knew exactly what they're doing and they were threatening. But anyway, I stayed home my freshman year of college and went to a local university and then I built up the courage to move to New York City where I was a biology and neuroscience major so that I could dance and perform an audition while going to school and fulfilling my left brain. And then I started doing research my senior year in college because I finished like a half a semester earlier or something and I needed to fill some credits. And I got linked up with a doctor at Mount Sinai where we were doing behavioral neuroscience research. So I got to look at brain scans all day long and talk about mental health. He was a clinical psychologist and we were working with postpartum depression, but it still is part of the major depression, bipolar world. So we're looking at the brains and the amygdala and the fear center. And so I learned a ton of looking at the actual brains and then I would link back to these guys and find similarities or what their brains were doing. They have frontal lobe inhibitions. So again, it's all starting to make sense not make sense in logic, but I'm understanding... become clear
0: as to the link between the two, I suppose.
1: Yes. So in college, it's kind of like, oh, do I feel bad? Like they have a mental disorder. Does that mean they should do what they do? No. But this is something that we as a society can understand and help manage and handle before it gets to this point where they're sleeping with underage girls. And... So again, that just kind of ticked in the back of my mind always. And I think was a lens that I have used when I meet people or I'm helping people, whether it be through the yoga therapy, the neuroscience, personal training, nutrition, all these things come back to our actions out in the world. And so I lived in New York City for seven years, dancing, performing, shooting movies and TV shows and modeling. And then I got completely burnt out because that's what New York City will do to you if you don't stop. And so I just upped and moved to California. California was great for me. It opened up my eyes to the yoga world and like cool yoga world, not the like Lululemon yoga world. This is like the authentic is true traditional yoga where you learn that your mental capability, your mental state, your physical state, your emotional body, that's all yoga. It's not just about the flexibility and all that. And again, the predator stuff came back to me of like, wow, all of these different layers of people make up who they are. And we can change without pharmaceuticals or just throwing people in jail. I have a good friend from high school who lived here in Bali. And for a long time, he's like, with everything you do with health and wellness and the way you see things, you would really like it here in Bali. And I was always like, that sounds cool. But like, I don't travel. I'm always too busy with work. You know, I can't take a day off. I've never took a vacation as an adult. And... Then one night in September, I was teaching um, I r- helped run the yoga and healing sciences program at Loyola Marymount University. And I was teaching them the neuroscience of pranayama. And I was like super high after teaching them for three hours. It was like, yes, this is my passion. I love mixing the neuroscience and the yoga and teaching people. And that night also, my friend had messaged me like, you should really think about coming to Bali. And it just clicked. And I was like, that's it. I want to go to Bali. And so I kept putting it off, putting it off. And then again, in November... I was with my neighbor, who's an excellent world traveler, Jenna. She travels all over the world and knows how to navigate this stuff. We were sitting on the computer and we just happened to find this flight because we're in a pandemic. So you couldn't fly directly to Bali the normal way that you would. And I just, I clicked book. I don't know how it happened, Chris. I just did it. Like my finger went and clicked the book button. And I said, okay, I guess I'm going to Bali for a month in December. And I said, I'll just go for a month. There's nothing happening in the industry. You know, the entertainment industry is quite slow right now. It's over the holidays. And then I got to Bali And two weeks into my trip, I was like, I can't go home. I can't go back to LA seeing what was happening. There's so much to learn here. And I feel like I'm alive again. I feel like I've been dead for like 15 years, just going through the motions. And I said, okay, well, I'll stay one more month. Okay, I'll stay one more month, right? I kept extending my plane ticket. And then in mid-January, I was like, I'm canceling this plane ticket. And I'm still here.
0: Do you think you're going to stay for the long term?
1: Well, I definitely plan on coming back to the States. Just travel right now is ridiculously hard. Where even the night before when I was supposed to leave in January, they just canceled my flight. And now there's a ton of quarantine rules. So to leave and come back and have to quarantine for possibly 14 to 20 days is not something I would like to do. So I'm just kind of monitoring my time and seeing when the best way, because I would really like to go home and see my family in New Jersey, very much so. And I am have been studying and working with a woman quite heavily in plant medicine, cacao. And I am soon going to be offering cacao ceremonies and sessions for my clients, which is very exciting. And it can be done online or in person. It's a very profound experience. And again, it's just another level of being able to help people find clarity in their life.
0: If people want to reach you, Casey, for your services, online yoga therapy, nutrition, things like that, the new program that you just spoke of, how do they reach Casey Morrow?
1: So the best way to reach me is through my website, www.caseymorrow.com. My Instagram, which is Casey-Morrow, I believe. Yeah. And there's links on there as well. And I just joined TikTok, but I already violated community guidelines multiple (laughs) times in 20 minutes somehow. I just signed up. I don't really know. But I will be accessible on there too because I know that's a great platform to easily communicate with people because it's really about building a community. And I now have a larger worldly view of things coming from a little town in Point Pleasant Beach where everything is happy-go-lucky it seems to now coming across the world, meeting people and working with people from around the world daily. Has just expanded my ability to communicate and create this larger community. So, again, online is great because we can all stay in touch.
0: Looking back, Casey, would you do it again, be the decoy in the Predator investigations?
1: Yeah, I would do it again. No question. No question.
0: And how has it changed you, do you think, as an adult today, as a 32 year old woman?
1: As a 32 year old woman, I believe those experiences have very much shaped me and brought about my own personal fears and my personal resistance to people and how I can work on that and how I can approach people differently or realize that not everyone is out to get you. You don't have to do everything alone. You can ask for help. Not everyone is bad. I used to think everyone was guilty until proven innocent, but that's not always the case. You just have, it's discernment. It's being attuned to the situation and discerning whether you're being taken advantage of or if this is a genuine person.
0: Well, Casey, I can't thank you enough for being with us. I have one other question for you before we go. The beautiful home in which we did the predator investigation in Metaloca, New Jersey, that was destroyed by Superstorm Sandy, correct?
1: Yep. I feel like half of it's in the ocean, half of it's in the bay, and but at the same time, you know, if that house was going to get knocked down at some point, I'm glad that the ocean took it away in one fell swoop instead of having to hire an excavating company to come in and crush it. So I feel sad that it's gone because that's my childhood. That's my Nana's house, this house my dad grew up in. I have a lot of memories at that beach, but very glad that the ocean just said, I got it. We're going to just take care of this in probably, you know, 10 minutes, big wave, high tides, perfect storm. Shoop, gone.
0: Did your family ever rebuild?
1: No, it is an empty lot, but the dune is still there. And that dune is very special to me. Whenever I'm in New Jersey, I ride my bike down there and I sit on the dune.
0: I remember it well. Well, thank you for everything you did for us back then. Thank you for being on this show right now, this podcast, and good luck with everything you do in Bali and wherever your adventures take you. Casey Morrow, thank you so much for everything. Thanks so much,
1: Chris. It It was really nice to chat again.
0: I'm Chris Hanson, and this is Predators I've Caught.